What is the soul? Where is it? Can you measure it? Touch it? Recreate it? Do near-death experiences, reincarnation, and unexplained brain activity indicate the existence of the soul? These are questions that have intrigued and haunted people since they first walked the earth. Today, in the 21st century, experts are closing in on some answers, using new technology and new understandings to unlock the secrets of the soul. attributed to the soul by a Boston physician in 1907. Dr. Duncan McDougall conducted a ghoulish experiment. He watched six people die. Dr. McDougall wanted to know whether the soul existed, so he built a delicate scale to determine whether humans got lighter at the moment of death. In just one of the deaths, McDougall recorded a weight change of less than one ounce. 21 grams. His experiment got a tiny mention in the New York Times. More of a curiosity than news. Although no one since has been able to duplicate McDougall's macabre test, it's still remembered today as the first time that modern science attempted to quantify the existence of the soul. Cultures since the beginning of civilization haven't needed nor relied on scientific evidence of the soul. A core belief for most cultures and religions is that when our bodies die, there is an immortal part of us that remains past death, our soul. All the world's great major religions talk about us as being souls, as truly being spiritual beings that are incarnated here in our bodies, and that the death of our physical body is not the death of us, it's the death of the body. That that us, that special spark that is us, I call that the soul, it leaves. There's a lot of question right now about how much of the irrational, mysterious, supernatural aspects of life we can explain through science. And Many, many scientists are directing their attention toward those questions, and I applaud that. But I also think that religion is a language for the stuff that we don't understand. And one of the reasons that religion is so fascinating to me is that it is, by definition, paradoxical, oxymoronic, like things don't fit rationally together. You want to live forever and you want to keep changing. You want to have an immortal soul and you want to hug your grandma. You know, you want... These things don't fit together. They're not rational. To trace the history of the modern, Western view of the soul, the trail begins in the 3rd century BC. Alexander the Great swept across Europe and Asia, and Greek thinking spread like wildfire. The Greeks, above all others, set the stage for what we believe about the soul today. The Greeks believed that your body was unimportant. In fact, even bad. It was the place where all of your most base impulses resided. So lust, greed, uh, hunger, 
childbearing, uh, everything that was yucky about human life resided in the body, and everything that was good and true about human life resided in the soul, which was in the head. So when you died, your soul ascended to God, and your body resided in the ground. You didn't need it anymore. The Greeks believed in reincarnation, that the soul can move on to a new body. As Christianity conquered the world, the Greek idea of body and soul being separate things was eclipsed by the evolving Christian notion that body and soul are part of the same whole. Because the, in the Greek context, you had your soul, your soul went up to heaven after you died, and your body was dirt, dust, nothing. The Christian teaching is that your body and your soul are one thing. You can't have one without the other. Together they make you, you. Christian ideas of what does my soul look like raise questions that people joke about, but it remains one of life's great mysteries, where we go and what we are after we die, and which me is my soul. Am I me when I was 26, or am I me when I am 80, or am I me with my wrinkles, or am I me without my wrinkles? You know, am I me with my cancer, am I me without my cancer? You know, those questions start to get people hung up, and then they start to be kind of funny and silly. But the yearning itself is real and powerful, so it's, it's a conundrum, like all of these things. Christian beliefs eventually deviated even further from the Greeks, who considered the soul separate from the body, like an energy force. Christian souls were more like ghosts with shapes. Like in Dante's Inferno, etc., you see all these souls, okay? They seem like bodies. Dante can recognize them, but, you know, they're souls. They're souls that are shaped like bodies, so they've taken on a certain amount of somatism, which I think shows how hard it is for Christianity to separate body and souls, that even these souls, which were pronounced as completely immaterial, there's no matter in them, nevertheless, they can be perceived that way. The West inherited a combination of Greek and Christian apocalyptic ideas about what the soul is, which is more confounding today than it was in its own time. If the soul leaves the body after death, where does it go in the years or even centuries it may have to wait until the day that Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead? What do you do in the period between the last judgment and you know, when a person dies? Well, what is the soul just on itself? I mean, how do we envisage the soul without the body? It's very, very difficult. What the scholars of early Christianity say, for example, is that we've made it into a mush. That in those days, you know, there was a word for resurrection, which meant resurrection. And there was a, there was a combination of words for immortality of the soul, which meant something different. And now when we talk about heaven and afterlife, we mush it all together. And we mean heaven and we mean resurrection and we mean immortality of the soul and we mean seeing grandma and we mean seeing Jesus and we mean hearing harps and, and we don't disentangle these ideas. But in the ancient world, they were very distinct ideas. Um, and you were either in the immortality of the soul camp or you were in the resurrection camp. 
Since resurrection involves bodies and immortality involves souls, René Descartes tried to reconcile the two by focusing on consciousness. In the 17th century, he famously wrote, I think, therefore I am. Since then, scientists believed that if there is a soul, it resides somewhere in the brain. But they haven't found it yet. And today, we're still grappling with the problem. Is the existence of the soul a question for science or religion to answer? Religion is a way for us to talk about and think about those aspects of human life that are beyond us. And so let science keep probing, because it must, and yet let us keep acknowledging through whatever language works for us, whether it's poetry or art or religion, that there are aspects to the human experience and to human yearning that fail to meet categories. And I think the soul is one of those things. We want to believe that there's something special about us that lives forever. And we want to believe that we will commune with those we love at some later point. We don't want to lose those people. And those yearnings are powerful and important. Those yearnings require that consciousness be something separate from the brain, that it is something not material, but magical. The spiritual among us believe one thing. I have seen men, women, old, young, all faiths, all gender orientations, atheists, believers, all religious traditions. I believe it is a universal human phenomenon. It's part of being human, that we are all souls, and that each soul sometimes has the capacity to have a spiritual experience in certain circumstances. The scientific among us hold another view. I don't think consciousness is some supernatural soul that is not measurable scientifically, that's somehow associated uh, with our natural brain. I also don't think there's a mystical world beyond what we can measure. If something actually exists, uh, then it's part of uh, the real world and ultimately we should be able to detect it. A Louisiana boy offers incredible evidence that should satisfy both sides of the soul debate. His case offers proof that the soul is real, that it can be reincarnated, and that science can study it. According to a 2007 Pew Research Center poll, 81% of Americans say they believe in an afterlife. 45% believe in ghosts. I personally had an experience where I saw the spirit of my grandfather after he died. And I haven't gone to the place where I believe it was true. And yet it felt true to me. It felt real to me. And I am very sympathetic with those feelings that people have, you know. They see the ghosts or the spirits of people they've lost. They have a, a traumatic physical experience and they see things. And I actually think that soul is more a matter of faith than proof. Today, scientists are studying people 
who make a compelling case that they used to be someone else. At the University of Virginia, a group of psychiatrists use science to unlock the secrets of reincarnation. Since the 1960s, the Division of Perceptual Studies has been collecting cases of children who claim past life memories. They now have files on 2,500 children. Well, I think what the research shows is that for people who are open to considering the possibility that there is evidence that consciousness at times can exist separately from a functioning brain. So in the cases of these children's reports, if you look at the, the best cases, uh, they provide evidence that at times there can be this carryover of memories and emotions that seem carried over from one life and, and continue on in another. May 2000, Lafayette, Louisiana. A mother awakens to hear the screams of her two-year-old son. He was laying on his back and he was kicking his feet up like this and pounding his fists like this, just kicking and kicking and screaming at the top of his lungs. Andrea Leininger cannot soothe her baby James. Eventually, he falls back to sleep. She thinks the nightmare is over, but really, it is just beginning. Then the next night he had another one, and it was the exact same thing, the, ex the same exact kicking motion. And the more he had it, the more bizarre it became because it was so, so specific and so repetitive. This marked the start of one of the best documented cases of possible reincarnation in history. Today, James Leininger is 12. I play sports, baseball, soccer, go to Ascension Episcopal School. I have a lot of friends there. The other kids, when they were younger, say, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. But I was always, I want to be a fighter pilot. I want to be in the Marines. Oh, you guys are school pictures. Yeah. Oh, they came out nice. From the age of three, James's parents began to hear stories from their son that shocked them that their son was recalling things that connected him to a Navy pilot who died in 1945. They were skeptical. Bruce is an HR manager in the oil industry. Andrea is a former ballerina turned instructor. As Christians, they never believed in reincarnation, but they began to piece together an amazing story. The first clue came from the terrifying non-stop nightmares that James began having at the age of two. He was saying, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. Airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. That's when I was like, oh my God, is that what he's been dreaming this entire time? What he was saying wasn't registering as much on me and what he, as what he was doing. He was flailing around in bed. And I remember the very specific thought I had at that point. This looks like the exorcist. He was <laughs> freaking out. I had this thought, he possessed. What is going on here? Within a year, the visions that greeted James in his nightmares began taking shape when he was wide awake. I was reading to James, and then he sat up and he goes, Mama, the little man's going like this. And he laid down and he goes, and he did the same thing he did in his dream. He's kicking his feet up and he goes, little man's going like this. Ooh, 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 can't get out, can't get out. 
And he, I sat him back up and I said, who's the little man? And he goes, me. It still makes my hair stand up. And Bruce said, what happened to your plane? And he said, it crashed on fire. And he said, why did your airplane crash? And he said, it got shot. And Bruce said, who shot your plane? And he went, oh, the Japanese. James then gave his parents the next uncanny clue, one that was very specific, the name of a ship from which he says his aircraft took off. So I said, well, did your boat have a name? And he said, uh, Natoma. And I, I'd never heard the word before. And I went down the hall and uh, got onto the computer and Googled it. And down around hit 300. All there was this thing, Natoma Bay, CVE-62. Clicked on it, and up comes this history of a World War II aircraft carrier. And so that was, was the beginning of what the heck is going on here. Standing there staring at this picture of this little, it was like an aerial photo of this little aircraft carrier in the water. And we just stood there staring at it for a long time. I had no answers. Uh, you know, how could he know this? How could he know a person? How could he know a ship? And what did all this mean? So that was where I really just said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what I'm going to find, but I'm not going to stop looking until I get as many answers as I can get. This was enough to send Bruce on an investigation, doing his own research. Over the next two years, he learned about the men from the Natoma Bay, both living and dead. And James kept giving his parents additional, tantalizing, eerie clues. Well, I kept asking him, do you remember what your name was? Do you remember what your name was? And he always said, James. And I thought, well, he's two, he's confused. He, th he thinks I'm asking him what his name is. Then, James started drawing. That was one of my mission things. The mission thing, you remember that? Yeah. That's one of my favorite ones. The same thing, over and over. Like a movie compressed all into one frame. An air battle. Flack. A plane on fire. And his signature, James Three. So one day I was in the kitchen, I was washing dishes, James had breakfast, and, and he had an airplane, he was just flying around like this, and he goes, Mama, before I was born, I was a pilot, and my airplane got shot in the engine and crashed in the water, and that's how I died. And I was just froze. It was such a bizarre thing to say, but it was, it was just that matter of fact. There was no drama, there was no emotion to it. At three, James started pretending to be a pilot with an attention to detail that astonished his father. Now, one day, he dragged a car seat into the closet in my office, and he set up a little cockpit in there. He had a little play school console, and like, it was going to be a cockpit. You know, and he's going back and forth. All of a sudden, the door comes flying open, and he comes rolling out of it. I said, James, what happened to you? He says, I said, did you fall? He says, no. He says, my plane got shot, and I bailed out. The next breakthrough came when Bruce was invited to the Natoma Bay Veterans Reunion. He asked about the names of men killed in battle. And this led him to finally solving the mystery of James III. He called me on the phone and he said, you won't believe this, there's only one guy from Natoma Bay who was killed during the ba battle for Iwo Jima. And his name was, it was James M. Houston Jr. And I said, wait, that would make our James, James III. 
I was so excited. I'm like, that's it. I'm like, that's him. It's, J it's James M. Houston. His name is James. It's James Three. James Houston Jr., World War II Navy pilot. At age 21, on March 3rd, 1945, his plane was shot down over Chichijima. Now, the skeptical parents were sitting on compelling proof that their little boy really was reincarnated. Louisiana boy James Leininger spent his childhood recounting memories of being a World War II Navy pilot. Memories of a past life his parents could no longer ignore. From the age of two to six, James continued to provide pieces of evidence of the incredible possibility that he was James Houston, reincarnated. This plane, the Wildcat, is the plane that James M. Houston crashed in. And he was a test pilot for the Corsair. And he would test fly those off of carriers. The F-18 is the plane I want to fly when I grow up. Since he was two, James showed an unusual fascination for military air shows and an uncanny familiarity with vintage aircraft. His parents cautiously made contact with James Houston's only surviving relative, his sister, Anne. At first, she didn't know what to think about the little boy who claimed to be her brother, reincarnated. But then, James asked her for a painting that only one person other than her knew existed. She sent this January 16th, 2006. says, Dear James, I do hope that this is the picture you asked for. It is the only one of me done by my mother. I am sorry to be so long sending it to you. These past few weeks have been very busy and hectic. I hope you like it. With my love, Annie. James believed then, as he does now, that it was the dead pilot's soul asking for that picture. I had asked her for a painting that my past mother had done for her and me. This was in her attic for 50 or so years. My parents and she thought it was crazy that I would know about something like this. Anne, too, became a believer. And there were other, more chilling connections. James had three G.I. Joes he named Billy, Walter, and Leon. Names his parents thought were strange for a boy to choose. Bruce is like, hey, James, what are you going to name your uh, G.I. Joe? And he's just playing, he goes, Walter. And so we were like, Walter? Bruce goes, how come you named your G.I. Joes Billy, Walter, and Leon? And he goes, because that's who met me when I got to heaven. And it was one of those moments where, like, the blood drained out of his fa our face, and we just kind of walked backwards. Bruce went in the office. I went in the office. We closed the door. He's in there going through papers like this. I'm like, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? He finds this piece of paper, and he's like, and he says, Billy Peeler, Walter Devlin, and Leon Connor were all in the same squadron as James Houston. I was like, when did they die? Did they die before? He's throwing papers around, pulls out another sheet, and he looked at the dates of death, and they all died before James Houston died. They all flew with him. Although James's dad remained skeptical that reincarnation might really be possible, what happened next was uncanny. 
So we're cleaning up the yard. He's playing in the leaves. I said, I just love you to bits. And he goes, well, he said, I knew you'd be a good daddy when I picked you. And I said, what? And he said, well, when I found you and mommy, I knew you would be good parents. My <clears> head was shrinking to the size of a raisin, you know, my brain. I said, what do you mean when you found us? He said, well, I found you and mommy. Uh, I found you and mommy in Hawaii. James told his father that he saw them in a pink hotel, which is where the Leiningers were staying when they decided to have James. Bruce and Andrea were cautious about asking doctors and psychiatrists for help. They decided to find their own solution to James's ordeal. And their solution was to go to Japan, to the very expansive ocean where the pilot, James Houston Jr., died. Thou who art the pilot of the souls of men. The boat was right above where the, you know, the wreckage of the plane was. And Bruce did this beautiful memorial service. And so I thought that was a perfect moment for me to just say, you know, I, I sat down with him and I said, you know, Jim Houston's been a part of your life for as long as we can remember. And he's always going to be an important part of, of who you are. But you have a life to live as James Leininger and it's time for you to say goodbye and to Jim Houston. And he just started the ball. Started bawling. And he cried for about 20 minutes. Yeah, he had everyone on the boat. It was the saddest boat. thing I ever seen. Uh, he had everyone on the boat. Crying. It's time for him to say goodbye. James Houston. Goodbye, James Houston. Good job. such a brave soul, such a brave soul and spirit. It was weird when we got back to shore. It was something had changed. He left something there. He really did. It was palpable. You could see that he were, he was, he'd mourned that and everything that had happened and was ready to move on. And he really did at that point. That's kind of when everything really changed. I'm going to be the same thing that James M. Houston was. A pilot. The next picture that James Leininger drew was one of peace. The nightmares stopped. The memories started to fade. I don't want him to remember anything about his past life. He has a life, you know, and I don't want him to be bogged down or confused or. Well, he's our son, you know, he's not, he's not Jim Houston. Got a life to live. Today, James Leininger can remember nothing specific about the soul that used to torment him. At 12, he is an ordinary boy whose bedroom says something about who he is and who he believes he once was. I'm in a Boy Scouts. I'm a, a first-class scout in the Boy Scouts. These are the books I got from Chi-Chi Jima. Uh, yearbooks. BB gun my money bag, my phone. I don't know when I got this, but this is uh, my grandmother's rosary and my Star Wars stuff and a blue angels. He doesn't talk much about his past life memories with his friends, but he doesn't hide it either if classmates stumble across a story on the internet. 
To James, reincarnation is a fact of his existence. It's part of his soul. I believe that the spirit that I used to have when I was four, five, six has gone away. I'm just James now. It's not, I still have James Houston in me, I think, but it's not so much the bad history. It's more of the peaceful history of his life.